I'm so grateful to live in this country. I'm so grateful for the celebration that we've had today and, and hopefully more, more of you will continue with tomorrow. Um, it's because of the, the freedom that we have that we are able to meet together in this place and share from God's word today. And the fact even, you know, thank you, Stelma, for reading that very long passage of scripture. It's a really, that's a lot of stuff with a lot of hard words. And, you know, but even the fact that we're, that she's able to stand here and we can stand and hear the word of God read publicly like that. We have so much to be thankful for and we need to not take that for granted. Um, this fall we've been doing a series focused on rediscovering um, spirit formed community. Um, do I need, that's okay, we're good. <laughs> because the church in the book of Acts is an excellent model of what a spirit formed community looks like, we've been considering a number of things, some of the characteristics of the church in the book of Acts. So far we've considered Christ-centered teaching, fellowship, prayer, breaking bread, missional sending, and gift-based serving. And today our premise is this. A spirit-formed community is a community which engages culture without compromising the truth of God's word. And so our scripture was found in Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. And we're not going to read that again today. But I do encourage you that if you've got your Bible, an actual physical Bible, or your Bible on your app, if you keep it open, because we're going to start by looking at some of the context of the scripture, um, like we should. And um, we always need to look back to what the context of it was. What were the things going on in the passage before? Um, and what would the things that were being said mean to the people that were hearing them at the time? And so as we go through some of those verses in this part of it, it's nice to be able to refer to those. So if you've got it open, just keep it open. Um, so to give the context fully of the scripture, we need to look back just for a second at Acts 16. Here we have Paul along with Silas. He's just, they've just gone through the whole ordeal of being thrown into the prison. And then we know that there was an earthquake and the prison doors opened. And they, the jailer thought that they would have all escaped, but they were all there when he came. And they, they were, he was so surprised and it led to the jailer and his whole family becoming believers. And then they remained in the prison until the magistrate sent officers to release them. And they visited with Lydia and then they left Philippi. Um, Acts 17 starts with them going to Thessalonica, where Paul did his usual custom. He went into the synagogue to reason with the Jews to explain to them that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. But the Jews there got so angry with him that they basically ran him um, and uh, Silas out of town. So they moved on to Berea, where they went and went through the same process again. They went to the synagogue, and things were going a little bit better there until the angry Jews from Thessalonica showed up there. And um, after this happened, um, things had not been going so well. So it was decided that Paul would be sent to the coast, to Athens, and that he would wait there um, for Silas and Timothy. And so that's where we pick up our scripture today. Athens, we know, is the, was the principal city of ancient Greece. It was the capital of the district of Attica. Its name was derived from the goddess Athena, and it was renowned for its philosophers, its schools, and its academies. It was known as a free city, which means that it uh, governed itself independently and it didn't pay any taxes to Rome. So we can see from the previous chapter and many others that Paul's normal routine was to visit the synagogue explaining to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And we know that in the synagogues there was many God-fearing Greeks that sat in the back and they came because they wanted to hear these things as well. In fact, 
they often responded more positively to Paul's message because um, it was the Jews, you know, who had condemned Jesus to death and it, they, they were not changing their mind on, on him in a lot of regards. But this was, Paul's, this was Paul's method. So in this instance in Athens, we see, starting in verse 16, that Paul was greatly distressed because he saw that it was a city full of idols. The word for distressed here actually means that his spirit was stirred. Have you ever had your spirit stirred? He saw that the city was full of idols because we read in verse 17 that he actually goes a step further than his normal routine. While waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive, because his, his spirit was stirred, he ventured out into the marketplace. Now we know some things about Paul. We know that he was used to an urban setting. He was from Tarsus, which was a city estimated to have a population of about half a million residents. He was brought up in Jerusalem, and that was the largest city in the empire. He was no stranger to city life. And as a city dweller, he was certainly able to speak Greek, which was to his advantage. And we know that he was a tent maker, which helped him identify with a lot of the artisans in the marketplace. Um, verse 18 tells us that there was a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who began to dispute him. The word for dispute here actually means something a little less confrontational than it appears at face value. It simply means they were conversing with him. So who are these philosophers? Well, the Epicureans, they were disciples of Epicurus. Makes sense. And they had abandoned their search for truth, seeking instead pleasure through experience. It's kind of where we get our modern Epicurean term. They denied providence and they believed the world to be the effect of mere chance. They believed that either the gods didn't exist or they were so far removed that they had nothing to do with mankind. They had no influence over life. They believed that the soul died with the body. And then you've got the Stoics, not disciples of Stoa. <laughs> they were disciples of Zena. Zeno, um, he was famous for teaching in a portico or a porch. And the Greek word for portico or porch is stoa, thus the name Stoics. Little history lesson here. They were pantheists. In other words, they believed that God is nature. Their philosophy was founded on quite different things. Uh, Self-sufficiency, the importance of duty, the importance of reason as the inherent principle in the structure of the universe. And they believed in the unity of deity. They believed all matter was eternal, that all things were governed by fate, and that virtue was its own reward, and vice versa, that vice was its own punishment. So they're kind of, in some ways, they're the opposite of the Epicureans. But the response of both of them, what was that to Paul speaking? We see that here that they said, what's this babbler trying to say? The word that's translated idle babbler is actually the word spermologus, which literally means seed collector or one who picks up scraps of information like a bird picking up scraps of seed in a gutter and just kind of they're falling wherever they may. Others said he seems to be advocating foreign gods and the word here for foreign actually means new. So what they were saying, that we have a lot of gods in our cities, um, it sounds like you're talking about a new god. They said, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. Well, I think that that's a better reception than he usually got from some of the Jews in the synagogue. I mean, here no one's trying to run him out of, a t out of town. They're actually open to learning from him. So verse 19 says that they took him to the Areopagus to have him further explain. 
they didn't take him by force as it, it kind of reads here in the English. We're, we're so used to, I think, seeing the disciples, you know, run out of town or arrested that we put that on these words. But really, it's not the case here. They simply wanted to take him to a place where that they could have him further explain himself. So what is this Areopagus? It's a rocky hill west of the Acropolis in Athens. It literally means hill of acres. And it was known to the Romans as Mars Hill. That's probably what it says in your Bible, Mars Hill. It was not just a hill. It was also the area of open-air council or often a court of justice. And if you look all the way to verse 33, you'll see Paul state that. However, the chief court didn't often meet there. Sorry, how, even though they did often meet there, what happens next in chapter 17 doesn't seem to be like a formal legal proceeding because Paul's speech doesn't take on the, the formal legal defense um, style. So this is more of a type of discussion that they were, had, they were having, and it was something that was very common in those days. Athenians and visitors sat around all day wanting to do nothing more than discuss philosophy. It was kind of like the Facebook and Twitter of the day. In fact, in, in verse 21, we see a little bit of sarcasm in Luke's words where he's saying that they have nothing better to do than spend all their time in intellectual stimulation as they discuss philosophy. Like I said, kind of like Facebook. <laughs> this brings us to, to verse 22 where Paul rises to the challenge of telling them more and he stands in the middle of the Areopagus. And, and you know, many would find that very challenging, but Paul seems to have prepared himself for this speech. Not only did he have the Holy Spirit in him, as we do, he seems to have spent some time studying their culture and observing their ways. Now, the city of Athens had a blend of superstitious idolatry and enlightened philosophy, and he'd walked around Athens, and, and while he did, he would have seen altars everywhere to every conceivable deity, Zeus, Zeus, sorry, Zeus and Athena and Aphrodite and, and even ones to, you know, abstract concepts like justice, modesty, energy and virtue. They wanted to have all their bases covered. And those altars, um, they had all those altars, but they still weren't sure if there was a God that they were missing. And they didn't want that God to be unhappy with the fact that they had missed him or her. So they put up various altars to an unknown God. And there wouldn't have been just one of those. There would have been many of them all over the hillside. At this time, um, when Paul's speaking, there is actually an older Greek legend that's quite interesting. It, was, it tells the story of Athens falling under a terrible plague. And the city elders had no idea how to get the plague to stop. They believed that they were under a curse for slaying people that they had promised to provide amnesty to. Not a great idea. And in this case, the plague came and they tried sacrificial offerings, but with no relief. So they looked to the oracle or the priestess for wisdom. And she said, yeah, there is another god that remains unappeased. But she didn't know who the god was. So what she suggested was that they send a ship to tar uh, the island of Crete and fetch a man called Epimenides, who would know what to do. He agreed with her. Yeah, there's still an unknown god in need of appeasement. The only problem is, how do you invoke a god whose name you don't know? So Epimenides felt that any god, both good and powerful enough to do something about the plague, um, would also be, by his or her very nature, good enough to overlook their ignorance. And so he devised a plan 
um, to seek out a sign from the unknown God. He, he literally put out a fleece. He, uh, he told the Athenians to allow a flock of healthy sheep of different colors to graze on the grassy slope of Mars Hill. And then he prayed that any sheep that were pleasing to the God, that they would lie down in, right there instead of grazing, instead of eating. And he wanted it to be done in the early morning while they were hungry so it would be a true test. And so it happened. And although some of the sheep were hungry, some did lie down. And in each spot that they did, an altar to an unknown God was constructed and that sheep sacrificed on it with an acknowledgement of their ignorance of the God's name. Those poor little sheep, you know, they just wanted to maybe rest and not eat for a moment. And, uh, but that was the sign. And the legend told that within a week, the plague was gone. So with this altar to an unknown God, Paul finds his opening. And while the crowd thinks he's teaching something new, presenting a new God, Paul sets out to tell them that he's not. So his first words to them, verse 22 and verse 23, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown, or as other versions may say, yours included, in ignorance. I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, what Paul is actually starting with is a bit of a compliment. Maybe it doesn't sound that to you, because maybe like you, the term um, religious, it, it would have been interpreted to the Greeks as being very religious, but to the Jews, they would have said that that mean, meant superstitious. So it depends on kind of how you, where you're coming from. But in this, in this case, Paul seems to be being honest without being offensive. By placing the plaques on the altars, the Greeks themselves had confessed their ignorance of this unknown God, and, and now Paul proposed to make his identity known to them. When he says, what you worship in ignorance, he's not saying that they are stupid or foolish people. He's simply stating the obvious. They don't know this unnamed God. They don't know him. And so these were truthful words said in a tactful way. He's basically saying, you yourselves admit that you don't know this God. How did Paul see that they were very religious? Again, through careful observation that came from stepping further than his normal routine. The verse says that he looked carefully. He really sought to understand the Gentile culture in order to be able to engage them in dialogue. Paul didn't condemn them for their worship. He didn't call their gods false. He didn't tell the people why their beliefs were wrong. He began with where his listeners were spiritually. He began with the importance that they placed on their idols. And he remained faithful to the truth while being respectful of his audience. Paul may have disagreed with them, but he was not disagreeable. Next, in verse 24, he says, The God that made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. This term, Lord of heaven and earth, this was an Old Testament description of God. We see it in Exodus 20, verse 11, and we see it in Isaiah 42, verse 5. But this was also something talked about by the Greek philosopher Plato, clearly their most famous philosopher. Paul was saying that because God is creator of all, he has no need of living in a temple made by human hands. And that would have made complete sense to the Stoics in the audience. 
Verse 25 says, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Now, God being the source of life and breath, this was the term zoe in Greek, and it was something the Athenians associated with Zeus. Here, Paul is saying indirectly that Yahweh and not Zeus is the source of life. And it follows that if man possesses God's spirit, his breath or life, then God himself is spirit and therefore not capable of being represented materially in the form of an idol. The Greeks would also have agreed that God is not in need of anything. That was a no-brainer for them. Verse 26 says, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. One man refers to Adam. When he says determine the times for them, some theologians think that that refers to like the periods of nations, like the rise and fall of Assyria or Babylon. But it's more likely the, that the word times or epochs just refers to the seasons. The exact places where they should live, or in some versions you'll see the boundaries of their habitation. Paul is likely referencing the fact that the earth was formed and furnished as a home from humankind before humans even came to occupy it. So basically, verse 26 is establishing God's sovereignty over humankind. It's God who arranged time and place for humankind, that we might seek God and find him. Verse 27 said, God did this so that men could seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. Remember, the Epicureans in particular felt that God is far removed from the world. But Paul was saying that nothing could be further from the truth. The words reach out for him um, actually mean to grope, and, and they were reserved for uh, a blind person stumbling forward in the darkness, which is what Paul is saying that the Athenians are doing in their ignorance of this unknown God, but that this was a God that they could know personally. And in verse 28 and 29, Paul does something quite interesting. I love this. Instead of quoting the Hebrew scriptures, he realizes that his listeners would have been unfamiliar with them, and instead he quotes from Greek poetry. Imagine a preacher just doing that today. I think sometimes people would say that you're ashamed of the gospel if you didn't start with the gospel and end with the gospel. Paul cited their own poets, which earned him credibility. In fact, to not mention Greek poetry while speaking at the Areopagus would have caused Paul's, his, uh, Paul's listeners to just dismiss him as not being um, educated or intellectual. The Greeks knew their philosophy and their poetry. Their primary education included the practice of writing down and memorizing quotes from the poets. Their secondary education focused on reading from the poets, Homer in particular. The myths of the poet were, poets were such a part of culture in Greece that they carried great weight and influence. In fact, they did with the Hebrews as well. Poets were often considered authorities on various topics. Greek people, for instance, quoted Homer the way that Jews quoted the Torah, which is the first four books of the Bible. Homer was referred to as a divine poet or the great prophet of truth. Even if one were to disagree with Homer, his work would usually be a starting place for discussion. And Jew, Jews were happy to appropriate this Greek poetry and philosophy, 
when these things were used to support their own teaching. So Paul was familiar with some of this, but I believe he studied it further in order to engage his audience, and he draws on that now. It's really neat what he says next. In him we live and move and have our being. Paul draws a parallel here with Epimenides, who I formerly mentioned was the one that, um, to deal with the Greek plague. Paul actually refers to him in Titus 1, verse 12, as a prophet. And now here he gives reference to his 6th century Cretan poem called Cretica, in which he says about Zeus, but you are not dead, you live and abide forever, for in you we live and move and have our being. And then he says the next thing, we are his offspring. And this comes directly from a 3rd century BC poet named Eridus, who wrote an astronomical poem entitled Hymn to Zeus, who claimed that we are all the offspring of Zeus. Eritus used this poem to emphasize that both earth and the seasons demonstrate the existence of Zeus. And here Paul is not saying that Zeus and God are the same God. Don't get me wrong. He's just using this as a reference to say that the God of all heaven and earth, the God who created the seasons, the God of the Hebrews, exists based on the same evidence. Paul is brilliantly using their very own poets and their points of reference to help them understand that if we are God's offspring, in other words, if we are God's workmanship, then God cannot be our workmanship. He's not something fashioned by human hands. He made us. Verse 29, as his offspring, offspring, we are to give him the honor that he's due, which cannot be given properly if we imagine him in the form of an idol. And I can even imagine Paul pointing towards the statue of Athena in the Parthenon that was made from gold and ivory while he talks about this, uh, about idols made of gold and silver and stone. And then finally in verse 30, Paul narrows in on the most important part of the message now that he has their attention and their full respect. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul doesn't hold back in presenting the uncompromising truth of the gospel. The Athenians could maybe have had an excuse for not acknowledging the one true God, which they should have been able to come to know from these other facts, but now they are without excuse because Christ has come and he has risen again. The fact that God is the creator of all also means that he is the one to judge all because he, and he will judge the world through the man, Jesus Christ, because he raised him from the dead. The hearers of the speech are called to repentance for their lack of knowledge of the one true God. And nobody in Athens, no Greek in Athens, believed in the resurrection. So once he got to this, most didn't buy into what he was saying. Verse 32 says that some of them sneered. They kind of said, we want to hear you again on this subject, which was kind of a, a polite form of dismissal. It's kind of like going, hmm, let's uh, talk about that someday. You know, not rude, but... It kind of ends the discussion. But there were others who said that they wanted uh, to know more. And it says that some followed him and believed. And, and Luke mentions two in particular. And it's kind of interesting that he does. Um, Dionysius, the Areopagite, was a member of the council. And history shows him later as the first bishop of Athens. And then Demarius. It's interesting because we don't know anything else about her from scripture. 
But the fact that she was there while this talk was happening, it does tell us something. Women were not usually part of these philosophical discussions. They usually stayed home. Hashtag not going home, okay? Not going home. <laughs> While their husbands <coughs> freed up from the daily tasks of life by slaves who did these things for them were free to engage in the leisurely activities. But because Demarius is present, it means that she could have possibly been a heteri, kind of like a geisha, a specially trained companion to a wealthy man educated in rhetoric and philosophy like of the day, like the men for the sole purpose of entertaining their partners. Whatever her true identity is, we don't completely know, but we can, we can wonder about that. But she did go against culture by following Paul. I'd love to read a book about her. On the surface, it might look like Paul failed in Athens. I mean, he stayed there only a short time. He never, it's not recorded that he had that discussion. He never came back. You won't find a letter to the Athenians in the New Testament. But yet, Luke devotes all of this space, and it's a long passage. He, it's only one of three speeches that he records, so it must have been considered important. And what would success look like anyways? I mean, this was the first city in Europe that Paul hadn't been run out of, so that's a little bit of success, isn't it? <laughs> he certainly was successful in planting some seeds of faith that took root after he left, and that is no small thing. So what does, what does all of this mean for us today? You know, many look at this passage, and then they base a, a, a sermon about you know, a, a modern-day idolatry, how to refute it, how to resist it. But instead today, I want us to, just for a couple minutes, dissect Paul's method of speaking and let it guide us as we go out into the world and make disciples. I want us to look at how this passage of Scripture can affect the way that we personally engage the culture around us. <clears throat> it's not Paul's theology I want us to look at, but it's his methodology. Jesus, we know, has called us to go out and make disciples or apprentices. We've been talking about that so much. And we know that he's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us and equip us in that task. But it's up to us to apply the principles of Scripture with wisdom as we do it. And so we've already gone through all of the verses. I won't do that again, but I want to highlight three principles. Yes, three. <laughs> involving deliberate action that I believe we can learn from Paul to guide us in our mission to make disciples. <clears throat> the first one is step out of your comfort zone. Now this has got to be one of the most cliche terms in the Christian life. How many times have you been told to step out of your comfort zone? And yet it's still one of the hardest things to do it seems. Our comfort zones have served us so well. They've kept us safe. But we cannot hide away in Christian cocoons and expect to have any impact on the world around us, something which God has expressly called us to do. As we step out of our normal routine, we, like Paul, will have our spirits stirred. With such a raging tide of opinion all around us today, it can be tempting to want to run and, and hide and shelter ourselves in familiarity with those of common belief and interest. I get it. it it's, it's tempting. It, it's easier. But you know what? This may be the safest thing to do, but it is also the most boring thing. It's boring. 
God has not called us to be safe and comfortable, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, he's called us into a daring and exciting adventure of sharing his good news in the places where it's needed the most. And to do that, we need to open ourselves up and step out into the uncomfortable places. If you allow yourself to truly be led by the Holy Spirit, he will lead you out. Always. We need to open ourselves up to learning about the people that we want to reach. Paul observed and he learned the Greek culture. And we need to do the same thing. I know, you know, this is just an example, but I, I know it's easier to have a Christian hairdresser. Absolutely. It makes the process simple. But imagine if you purposely picked one who was completely different from you in order to engage them. It's a lot easier to come up with an excuse and not go to the Christmas work party. Sure it is. But what could happen if you went? You might just surprise some people that you finally said yes. Imagine as a student in high school or university, instead of just praying that God will lead you to other Christians so that you can hang out with them, and I know you need your friends. Please don't get me wrong. You need that strength. Absolutely. But instead of praying that, if you ask, God, help me to find that one person that has got a completely different worldview from me. Someone that actually scares me a bit. And let me engage with them. Let me get to know them. If you feel unfulfilled and like you have no real purpose or direction in your Christian life, it might be because you are asking God to keep you safe. It might be because you are sheltering yourself away and actually living in a way that's completely opposite to the way that Jesus lived. How did Paul find his opening for sharing the good news? The same way you will, by stepping out of your comfort zone and relying on the Holy Spirit. By listening by reading, by watching and observing and paying attention to what people say and do. Go to the close, closest coffee shop alone and sit there and observe. Do it a little incognito. You don't want to be creepy. You know, but observe. It's amazing what you'll see. Walk around your neighborhood and take it in, praying for God to open your eyes and your heart. Engaging culture is not something that just happens. We fall into this routine. We get so used to this thing that we do. It doesn't just happen. We need to be quite intentional about it. The second thing is we need to build bridges. In his introduction, Paul prepares the audience to be disposed to listen to the rest of his speech by, for lack of a better term, kind of buttering them up. Albeit in ambiguous terms, he still does compliment them. Paul could have offended them right off the bat by condemning their idolatry or their ignorance or any number of things. But instead, he complimented them. He found the one good thing that he could see in what they were doing, and he highlighted that. It's beautiful. Like I mentioned previously, Paul disagreed with them, but he wasn't disagreeable. And if there was ever a time for us to learn that fine art, it is now. We are in a toxic cesspool with social media and people expressing their opinions. Every day we are surrounded by a cacophony of opinions. And you know what? Our opinions are important to us as well. In fact, they are often more important than people are. And that is just so sad. When dealing with culture, we've said before, we don't need to say, 
what would Jesus do? We just need to ask, what did Jesus do? And the answer is that first and foremost, he built a bridge to us. He left the glory of heaven to enter our world. John 1.14 in the message says it beautifully. He, the word, Jesus, became flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. He came into our messy, sinful world in order to engage messy, sinful people. He truly lived among the people that he was sent to. And here we see Paul following in his footsteps, engaging not just the people that he agreed with or who were easy to converse with, but the ones who couldn't have been any more different from him. And instead of building a wall of offense or of offense, he built a bridge of respect. I love it. If we want people to respect our views and be given the chance to express them, then we in turn have to respect others. We don't need to judge people's opinion. That's God's job. We just need to listen to them. Sometimes it's the listening that opens the door to amazing dialogue. Most people are expecting a Christian to shut them down. And that's kind of sad. I think a lot, I think, I, maybe I shouldn't say most, but a lot of people are expecting a Christian to shut them down when they express their opinion. How wonderful it would be to disarm them with a listening ear. As I said before, Paul didn't hold back the uncompromising truth of the gospel, but he didn't make it his starting point. And the third thing is to find common ground. Start from there. You might be dealing with a complete atheist. You know what? You were going to disagree on almost everything. But there are a couple of things that you can agree on. Both can agree that man exists, that morals exist, and that human beings are capable of doing good. You can start there. Or maybe you're dealing with somebody and you have you know, something in common completely outside of the conversation about God. Maybe you both like pottery or Pokemon Go. Who knows? Start with that one thing that you have in common. And if they end up disagreeing with you about a lot of other things, that's okay. Conversations are not arguments to be won. They're between people who deserve respect. Paul found common ground with the Athenians, people made in God's image, who were asking serious questions about life. And instead of insulting them, he built relationship with them. Common ground doesn't mean that you have to compromise your values. That's where we get it all wrong. We feel, we feel somehow that if we take that step towards people, we're just going it, to, it's all going to be gone. She's gone, she's gone. It's all gone. No, we don't have to compromise our values. Paul was selecting the element of Athenian culture that was most appropriate to his own theme. And he started there. We need to find common ground with the people we engage with in culture, just like he did. Most people don't believe what we believe. Today in Canada, we live in what is largely known as a post-Christian culture. But while people are walking away from the religion of their parents and their grandparents, they're not really so quick to give up the concept that there is a God or a higher power. So we have a launching pad for discussion, don't we? But it won't be able to be based on the Bible, which, you know, in generations past, that was kind of a given. Everybody kind of believed in the, you know, the inherency of the word of God. But that's not going to be able to be our starting point now. And if we're going to engage people who haven't grown up with the knowledge of church, we're going to have to be prayerfully intentional about finding common ground with them. If you're serious about stepping out of your comfort zone and finding common ground, let me suggest this. Read something that your friend has read. 
watch something that they like to watch, you know, within reason, you know. Show interest in what interests them. Engage your coworkers. Do less talking, more listening, you know? Two ears, one mouth. You'll find the common ground. And it's in the midst of listening that we're gonna hear things that sound an awful lot like our lives. We're gonna hear things like worry and anxiety, health issues, marriage problems, challenge in parenting, grief, loss. As I've said so many times before in this church, we have much more in common than we have different. And when we really grasp that, it affects the way we share the good news with those in our lives. Paul's speech was an excellent example of what's called contextualization. Engaging culture, as we said in our premise statement, engaging culture without compromising the truth of God's word. When we contextualize the gospel, we present it in a way that meets people's deepest needs. And it penetrates their worldview. Now, contextualization is a common missionary practice for our global workers. It always has been. And it's always been one that's been applauded by evangelicals. You know, in fact, as a Pentecostal denomination, we began because we needed to organize as a missionary sending agency. The Spirit of God was moving, Jesus' return was imminent, and there were people to reach globally with the gospel. And so a people that believed in the infilling of the Spirit for the purpose of, of witness organized themselves so that they could send missionaries far and wide. And every one of these global workers have put a priority on um, learning the cultural context of the place that they've been sent to. They've prayed for the Spirit's leading to find an opening for the gospel to be explained to the people they hope to minister to. There's a famous book called The Peace Child about a Canadian missionary, Don, Don Richardson, and I encourage you to read that. It, it, it talks about that, contextualizing with a Sawi tribe in New Guinea. But still today, global workers live among the people that they are hoping to minister to, and they learn their ways, they learn their language, they learn their culture, they learn their particular beliefs. It's just what's expected, and we applaud that. But what seems wonderful for our missionaries been, has been historically condemned here at home. And I find that so strange. If anything, the evangelical church in particular has been taught to, to shelter itself from society and, and live not among the culture, but apart from the culture as a way to maintain purity and not be stained by the people of the world who have been kind of seen as the enemy of Christ. And, and while things have come a long way, I think we have a lot further to go. How interesting it would be if we could apply the principles of contextualization to our everyday lives here in Canada and to our families. Not just, our, not just Canada, not just our city and our neighborhood, but our families as well. I'm going to ask Tyler to come back as I, and the worship team to come back as I clue up. I've been thinking a lot about, about what this means when it comes to our families. You know, a lot of you have kids who grew up in the church, and now they're adults. And these adults no longer, some of them hold the same beliefs that you do, and it breaks your heart. They're not walking with Jesus and because of that, many of you are living in a place of perpetual disappointment because you believe that they should know better. Believe me, I get it. This is not how you thought things were going to turn out. You spent years teaching 
and training and setting the guardrails and most importantly praying and this was the end result some of you are mad sad disappointed and heartbroken and if you were to be completely honest i think so many of us in this room if we were honest we have blamed god we have blamed the church and we have blamed ourselves at one time or another you feel desperate and your desperation may have caused you to talk and act in ways that have burned bridges with your kids instead of them. And I don't want to put guilt on you because we've all been in these situations. But it's so easy for our interactions with, with our kids to spiral into this neg cycle of negativity. And, you know, and through our actions, not just our words, but in our actions to let them know that we're not just disappointed with their choices, we're disappointed with them. And then we can spend all of our time trying to convince them to come back to Jesus or align themselves with our moral code, a code that they no longer believe in. You know, we try to tell them about the Word of God and what it says about their lifestyle when long ago they abandoned that as the Word of Truth for their lives. You think you have common ground with them because of your shared family history when their lifestyle has pretty much wiped out that common ground, or at least that common ground but what if you were intentional in applying these principles that we've talked about today of contextualization with your kids or your family members the same as you are when you spend time with your unbelieving friend or neighbor maybe it's time to face the truth and and realize that they're not just a tiny bit off the path they are as far away as someone who has never known the truth and maybe instead of seeing them as a Christian who should know better and who you feel needs to constantly be reminded of their sinfulness maybe instead if you saw them as as you would your unsaved co-worker or your neighbor and you use these principles demonstrated by Paul in this passage when engaging with them maybe there would be a shift what if you stepped out of your comfort zone to immerse yourself in them just a little bit more in their world what's important to them do less talking, more listening. Maybe for now, just for now, you could just observe them and learn about them while you continue to pray. What if you built those bridges to them? Asking them why they believe what they believe or have stopped believing what you taught them. And then just listen without waiting for that chance to tell them why they've gone off the rails. Maybe the listening, just maybe that listening would open the dialogue. Maybe you could ask the Holy Spirit to disagree with them without being disagreeable. And finally, how about just finding some common ground with them? What did they like to do? What's important to them? Could you immerse yourself in their world for a little while? You've wanted them to immerse themselves in yours. You see, the principles of contextualization are not just meant for overseas missions or, or even for reaching our neighbors when we go home today. They're perfect for our interactions with our family. A spirit-formed community is a community which engages culture without compromising the truth of God's word. And we don't need to look any further than our scripture today for an example of how to engage people with different beliefs without compromising our own. I think if it was good enough for the church in the book of Acts, if it was good enough for Jesus, 
and for Paul, then it should be good enough for us. Time-honored biblical principles that stand the test of time, they'll always serve us well. So let's get out of our comfort zones. Let's build bridges and let's find common ground. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit not to let us live safe lives, but let's boldly ask him to stir our hearts and lead us out to engage this culture right down to our families without compromising the truth of his word. Let's stand and pray. Let's stand all over here in the building and let's just close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we stand in this place today and in here, right now, it can feel pretty safe, God. As different as we all are, we have such an important thing in common and there's safety in that. And we thank you that we can come into a place where we have that, where we can be challenged and strengthened and built up and we can pour out our love on you and worship and hear from your word. And it's just, it's incredible, Lord. We, we love it. And so often we just want to soak that in. But God, we know that all of that is just about sending us back out again. That's the whole purpose of our lives. We were created for that, Lord. And Lord, we ask that you would challenge us, that you would begin to stir our hearts, that you would help us to be intentional, to choose to step out, to choose to listen and observe. We want to hear from your Holy Spirit so that we can move in your Holy Spirit and engage our families, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, the world at large, Lord. So often we just, we want to make a difference and we don't know what to do and we just feel like, oh, there's this big world out there and we got to do something. And you just want us to look to the right. You want us to look to the left and really see the people who are around us and just start there never meant it to be complicated or hard you just want us to love people to hear them to give them a voice to 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 express the deepest needs in their heart and life without judgment and God we thank you that we're not alone in whatever we do we know that your Holy Spirit goes with us we know that you lead us and that you will when it's necessary give us all the words that we do need Lord Lord, we help. We ask that you would help us to sometimes not feel that we need to talk right away or explain you or defend you. You need no defense. And you're at work in people's lives beyond what we could ever see or think. That person that we meet that we think is so far from you, God, you've, you're already working in their life. You're already doing something. And that's why you've set up a beautiful encounter with them. So God, we just pray that you would change our lives. Help our lives to become fulfilled and meaningful, God, as we live the way that you lived. We can't expect to do something different than you did and and get the same results, God. Let us just live the way you lived. Thank you, God, for what you're doing and for all the the people in this place right now who, who are full of all of that hurt, who are full of that desperation or maybe even tried some of this stuff and it it still hasn't gotten anywhere. God, we know it's so hard. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would strengthen and sustain them, Lord, that you would help them to know that you have not left them, that you have not forsaken them, that you love their children, and that you will have the final say. It's not over. It's not over, no matter what it looks like, no matter what the enemy tries to make us see or think or feel. Only what you say is true, and it is not over. You are at work doing things that we can't see. So God, I pray that you would strengthen all of those parents and grandparents, God. Lord, we just thank you for your presence in this place. God, lead us from this place today. Help us to live for you. Help us to be a true spirit-formed community that engages our culture around us. In Jesus' name we pray.